You know, it is my pleasure to introduce to you two very remarkable men. Alzheimer's affects many of us, and so a lot of us are here to learn. I, too, my father and grandmother both lived with Alzheimer's, so I know the importance of the research that these two men are doing to find answers and hopefully to develop a cure one day. And so whenever Alzheimer's affects us and we see two men who are working on that or all society, you know, they become superheroes in my mind. And so the first superhero that we have is George Bloom, and he's a UVA professor in both the College of Arts and Sciences and the School of Medicine. His lab at UVA studies what happens at the very beginning of Alzheimer's and what makes a normal neuron in the brain convert to an unhealthy neuron. Now, I learned that on a, he has a YouTube video. So I learned that so if you are interested in more, iTunes U is a great site to go to. But his lab has been supported by grants from the NIH, the Alzheimer's Association, the Cure for Alzheimer's Fund, and the American Cancer Society. Professor Bloom Holmes holds a BA and a PhD in biology from the University of Pennsylvania. Our next speaker is Tim Salthouse, and he is a UVA professor of psychology and is the director of the Cognitive Aging Lab. And this lab is one of the largest ongoing studies involving comprehensive cognitive assessments in healthy adults around the world. His research has been supported by the National Institute of Aging and has included a Research Career Development Award and two Merit Awards. Professor Salthouse holds a BA from UC Santa Barbara, in addition a Master's in Science and a PhD from the University of Michigan. Please give my two new favorite superheroes a very warm, more than the score, welcome. Thank you very much for that uh, kind introduction. I'm, I'm sorry my grandchildren weren't here to uh, uh, hear me described as a superhero, even though that's untrue. Uh, but what I'm going to do this morning is, is tell you about uh, Alzheimer's as, as a public health issue and, uh, and about the biology of Alzheimer's disease. And then I'll be followed by Dr. Salthouse, who will uh, inform you about some of the behavioral aspects of the disease. Now, the title uh, for the talk, or for the whole session this morning, was provided by Althea on behalf of the uh, Alumni Association. So perhaps I, well. Well, anyway, that, it, was, it was handed to me as a title. And uh, so, so maybe I should begin uh, by answering the question. And uh, I'll give a qualified yes. And, and, and the qualification is that while I hope that we can eradicate Alzheimer's in our, in our lifetimes, uh, I, I think a much more likely scenario is that we will learn to control it, to manage it. Uh, as has been done for so many other diseases. Eradication uh, may be hoping for a little too much, but controlling it much better than we're able to right now is something that's realistic, I think, within the next decade. And if I'm wrong about that, I hope I'm wrong uh, uh, because it'll happen sooner. But unlike Larry Sabato, who I think is the, uh, the, the speaker in a couple of weeks from now, uh, I do not have a crystal ball, so that's the best I can do right now. <laughs> But that leads to uh, maybe what we should be considering is, uh, and what I'd like to emphasize today, is why we must control Alzheimer's 
in our lifetime. And the reason, quite simple, is that uh, arguably Alzheimer's is, is already the most serious public health issue, not only uh, in our country, but in many, many other countries throughout the world. It knows no international boundaries. It's an enormous uh, economic problem as well as a health problem. So right now, uh, almost six million Americans have Alzheimer's disease. And uh, there's no doubt whatsoever, based on demographics, that that number will more than double by the middle of the century, less than 40 years from now, if we can't do better than we're currently able to control the disease. Uh, according to a recent article in the New England Journal of Medicine, Alzheimer's is now the most expensive disease in the United States, uh, exceeding even cancer and heart disease, uh, which until a year or so ago uh, were number one and number two. Now, uh, the greatest risk factor for Alzheimer's disease by far is age. Uh, and, and because uh, people are living longer and there are more and more people, we have, we're having an ever-increasing number of people who are at risk at Alzheimer's disease, of Alzheimer's. But as you've probably heard in the popular press, head injuries are also a major cause of Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases, including Alzheimer's, uh, excuse me, Parkinson's and frontotemporal dementias. I think we all have to ask ourselves the question, can we afford not to spend more money supporting research for Alzheimer's disease? Uh, I think you can make a very, very strong case that any investment that we may make in research, uh, even in these tough times and in these politically divisive times, will more than pay off uh, as dividends in the not-too-distant future. So in the history of medicine, Alzheimer's is a pretty new disease. It was first described barely over a century ago by this gentleman, Dr. Alois Alzheimer, who uh, was a German psychiatrist. He had a patient... August Dieter, shown here, who came to him uh, at 49 years of age uh, with the classic behavioral symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. Again, Dr. Soltas will tell you more about that. And uh, she died uh, just a few years later, and as a result uh, of, of his experience, Alzheimer uh, wrote a, uh, a case study uh, that uh, basically is the beginning of modern of the modern Alzheimer's disease story. And, and the one thing that Alzheimer's did that nobody else did before, because surely other physicians had seen people uh, like Auguste Dieter losing her cognitive skills or memory, uh, he, what he did uh, that was novel was to look at slices of her brain under a microscope using uh, some new staining techniques that revealed the two structures that are outlined here, amyloid plaque, what we now call amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles, or plaques and tangles for short. And nobody had ever seen these things before in normal brain. Uh, and uh, when he compared uh, the brain sections from uh, Ms. Dieter with comparably stained sections from normal people, he found that uh, these plaques and tangles, as we now call them, uh, were unique to her brain, and he therefore uh, uh, made the leap that uh, somehow these plaques and tangles were associated with the disease, that perhaps they were causative, they were at least diagnostic of the disease. In fact, uh, to this day, the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, the only definitive diagnosis, 
uh, involves the kind of behavioral assessments that you'll hear about shortly from Dr. Salthouse, uh, along with microscopic examination of the brain to re reveal the presence of plaques and tangles. Because there are lots of other conditions, neurodegenerative diseases, that have similar uh, behavioral symptoms but lack plaques and tangles. And among all of the neurodegenerative diseases that we know of, Alzheimer's is by far the most common. So to understand why memory and cognitive skills uh, decay in Alzheimer's disease, I want to tell you a little bit about what normally allows memory and cognitive skills to function properly in the brain. And they are the result of connections called synapses between brain cells, between cells known as neurons or nerve cells located in the brain. Now, every neuron has three parts. It's got a cell body or a soma. That's this big round part. It has branched processes that are called dendrites, and usually many of them. And each neuron typically has one long, thin, unbranched process called a synapse. And that synapse, at its very end, uh, makes contact with other neurons uh, at the synapse, uh, and usually those synapses are located on, on, or on dendrites. Uh, and so one cell sends a signal to another cell, and the integration of those signals in large neural networks uh, provides the basis of, provides the brain with the ability to store and analyze information. Uh, just as the uh, chip in my uh, laptop computer here has a, a, uh, a processor that does the same thing, albeit on a very small scale. Uh, an infinitesimally small scale compared to the human brain, which has about 100 billion neurons, most of which are found in the frontal lobes, uh, where memory and cognition is controlled. And on average, each of those neurons uh, makes synapses with about another 1,000 neurons. Some people think it may be as high as 10,000 on average. And that means that there are about 100 trillion synapses, or maybe even tenfold more than that, uh, in the human brain. So it's an enormously complex network of connections that provide the neuroanatomical basis for memory and cognitive skills. Now, the reason we lose memory and cognitive skills in Alzheimer's disease is because those synapses fail. And eventually, uh, and sometimes maybe very quickly, the neurons that were making those synapses actually die. In fact, at the end of a typical course of Alzheimer's disease, about 30% of the neurons in the brain will have been lost and the, and, and, and the size of the brain will have shrunk by about a third as a result. So, that leads to the question of what causes synapses to fail and neurons to die? This is really the crux of the question. What are the mechanisms? And how can knowledge of those mechanisms enable us to develop better therapies for Alzheimer's disease? Well, the answer is that it's not really the plaques and tangles. They're probably fairly protective or inert, although they may have some deleterious properties, but rather it's the building blocks of the plaques and the tangles. So if you were to isolate plaques and tangles and look at them under electron microscope, you might see something like this for the plaques and this for the tangles. And in both cases, 
you could see that the major elements of these structures are fibers. They're very small fibers. They're about 10 one billionth of a meter in diameter, 10 nanometers. Uh, they can be variably in length. They're very, very insoluble. They're almost like hair, especially the fibers in the tangles. But like I said, they're not the real bad guys. These plaques and tangles don't arise de novo out of the clear blue sky. Instead, they're built from smaller subunits, which in the case of the plaques are individual molecules uh, of, of a small protein called amyloid beta, or A-beta, as I'll refer to it from now on. Um, and these A-beta molecules gradually coalesce into small aggregates of 2 to 20 molecules each, and we call them oligomers. And then eventually these oligomers form the fibers. And there's a very similar process for tau, so the building block, excuse me, for the, for the uh, neurofibrillary tangles. So the building blocks of, of the tangles are these proteins called tau, which start out as individual protein molecules or monomers. And uh, then they aggregate into small oligomers, which eventually become the, the, the fibers that you see in the tangles. And in fact, we now know that it is the uh, small oligomers and individual tau molecules that are toxic, that cause the symptoms of synaptic failure and ultimately neuron death. Uh, and they become toxic because they misfold. So these, are, these molecules normally have 3D structures. And if those 3D structures get altered in certain ways because the, the proteins misfold, not only do they become toxic to cause synaptic dysfunction and neuron death, but they also become infectious, just like the proteins in mad cow disease and the human uh, equivalents, uh, like Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease and Kuru. So these are diseases that are infectious, but they are not, um, uh, they're not caused by organisms like bacteria or viruses. Uh, there's no DNA or RNA involved. Instead, if a misfolded toxic protein that has these properties comes into contact with another normal protein of the same type, it can convert that normal protein into the toxic and infectious form. And we call this, th these kinds of proteins prions. Uh, and just like the classic prion proteins in mad cow disease, uh, both amyloid and tau can form prions as well. Now, before you all worry and say, oh my god, now I can't go kiss grandma. If she's got Alzheimer's disease, I'm going to get it too because I come into contact with her. Don't worry about that. Uh, in contrast to the classic prion diseases like mad cow disease or Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, uh, there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever. In fact, the evidence points to there being no infectivity whatsoever from one person to another. But the infectivity is rather within the brain of the affected individual, that a healthy cell can become diseased as a result of incorporating infectious proteins that were created by another cell in the brain. So where do we stand therapeutically right now? Uh, many of you may know that there are four FDA-approved drugs on the market. They are uh, Aricept, Razadine, Nemenda, and Exelon. And uh, all of these drugs work, well, if they work at all, they work generally for a short period of time and with mild positive effects, and they don't always work. Uh, but they, when they do work, it's because 
they're able to, they work at the level of synapses that are already malfunctioning and barely working at all, and they help them work a little bit better and a little bit longer. But they do absolutely nothing to change, to alter the processes that lead to synaptic deterioration and neuron death in the first place. In other words, these are not disease-modifying drugs. Now, dozens of potential drugs have been tested in clinical trials. Many are still in clinical trials. Almost all of them have been aimed at, at reducing levels of A-beta in the brain or interfering with the production of A-beta or helping to clear A-beta from the brain. And they've all worked really well in mouse models, genetically engineered mouse models of Alzheimer's, but none of them have worked in humans. Uh, and that sort of leads to the question of why. And I think to understand why, we have to look at the timeline for what happens in Alzheimer's disease. So let's consider uh, a hypothetical example of a person who dies at age 75 at Alzheimer's disease, of Alzheimer's, and we know it's Alzheimer's because an autopsy was performed and plaques and tangles were shown to be present in the brain post-mortem. So what happens before that? Well, about 30 years before that, in the mid-40s, this person was probably already beginning to have a net accumulation of toxic misfolded forms of A-beta and tau. And sometime later, as their, as their levels built up to a certain point, they were being converted into plaques and tangles, which, as I mentioned, are probably not all that bad. In fact, it's very common for people to live to be a ripe old age, show no signs of cognitive or memory uh, impairment while they were alive, but to be discovered post-mortem to have lots of plaques. So plaques in the, but they never have tangles if they're asymptomatic. So plaques in the absence of tangles uh, is, 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 is not generally associated with, with symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. So maybe 10, 15 years or so after the amyloid starts building up and the tau and the tangles and plaques start uh, accumulating, neurons start dying. But still, because the brain is amazingly resilient, the patient may be asymptomatic at this point. And it isn't until this person, this hypothetical person, is maybe 70 years old, five years before death, that they become symptomatic, that they have a, or clearly symptomatic, that there's a clinical diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, which to this day is a, is a, is a behavioral diagnosis. So by this point, their brains are riddled with plaques and tangles. This prion-like process of toxic protein spreading from cell to cell is out of control. Massive irreversible brain damage has occurred already. And now and only now are they legally able to enter into experimental drug trials for, for Alzheimer's disease. It's too late. What we need to be able to do is take these people and get them into these drug trials much earlier, maybe before the plaques and tangles even start appearing, maybe when they're in their 20s. But how do we know who's at risk? We don't, because we don't have, we, we don't know how to diagnose Alzheimer's in its earlier, earliest stages before there are any um, symptoms. So, what we need very, very urgently now is better early diagnosis 
and disease-modifying drugs. We don't have either of them. We may actually have disease-modifying drugs that would work very well if we could identify people who are at grave risk long before they have symptoms rather than after they become uh, unambiguously symptomatic just a few years from death. So how are we going to get these things? We need money. Okay. We need a lot more money than is currently available for supporting research on Alzheimer's disease. And let me give you some very specific examples about what I mean. So at the NIH right now, $7 are being spent on AIDS research for every dollar that's being spent on Alzheimer's research. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not advocating that we take money from AIDS research and move it over to Alzheimer's research. Uh, the money we've spent on AIDS is arguably one of the greatest medical successes uh, in history. Uh, uh, the disease has not been eradicated, but it's well controlled right now. We can do better, and that's why we need to spend, continue spending every dollar that we already are on AIDS. But what we need to do for Alzheimer's disease is not just to bring it up to the level of spending for AIDS, but go way beyond that. There is absolutely no question whatsoever that money is a serious limiting factor in the war on Alzheimer's disease right now. Less than 10% of NIH grant applications for Alzheimer's disease are funded. And the number is even worse for the Alzheimer's Association, which is the second largest funding agency uh, for Alzheimer's research. Uh, albeit one that spends far less than, than the NIH, not because they don't, they, they, they don't want to spend more, but because their resources are much more limited. So in the final couple of minutes, I want to tell you a little bit about what we're doing in my lab. Uh, and uh, as, as you heard earlier, uh, we're trying to determine what happens at the very beginning to convert healthy neurons into Alzheimer's neurons, what kind of biochemical changes take place, and we want to learn how to stop it from happening. That's the translational part uh, of, of our research. We hope that we will be able to contribute uh, to better uh, early diagnosis as well as uh, better therapeutics. So um, the thing that we're really focusing on right now is, is cell death, and, and we can model this uh, using cultured neurons that are taken out of the brains of mice. And what I want to show you here is uh, 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 the experiment that got all of this work started for us. So these are, are neurons that come from uh, normal, wild, we call them wild-type mice. Uh, and what we did was we exposed them to beta amyloid oligomers for just 24 hours, for just a day. And um, these red nuclei that you see indicate neurons that are destined to die as a result of their exposure to Alzheimer's, or to, to uh, the amyloid oligomers. Now, when we did exactly the same experiment with mice that were, uh, neurons that came from mice that were genetically identical, with one exception, um, their tau genes had been removed, we found that the amyloid oligomers did not cause any of those neurons to die. And although I don't have a picture here to show you, uh, we, can, we can use genetic tricks to add tau back to these tau knockout neurons. And when we do that and expose them to the amyloid oligomers, then they do show signs of cell death again. So that proves unequivocally 
that tau is required for uh, uh, to make neurons uh, vulnerable to cell death as a result of being exposed to amyloid oligomers. And we found the same thing in vivo, in, 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 in mice, not just in cultured neurons, but this is part of the uh, uh, frontal lobe of the brain of a, uh, an Alzheimer's mouse model, six months of age, and you can see lots of neurons that uh, are in the process of dying or are destined to die, uh, but the same mice or otherwise identical mice whose tau genes have been removed still have lots of amyloid, lots of plaques, their neurons are not dying. So what I showed you in the prior slide was not an artifact of tissue culture. It happens in vivo also. And although, to the best of my knowledge, there are no tau knockout humans, uh, uh, th this same kind of cell death pattern that you see in the Alzheimer's mouse uh, occurs in humans as well. So what this says is that beta amyloid oligomers somehow cause tau to be toxic, and that causes synapses to fail and neurons to die. And so that leads to the obvious idea that, well, if we could somehow reduce or amyloid oligomers in the brain uh, or block their action, we would prevent tau from becoming toxic and prevent synapses from failing and neurons from dying. And that's frankly what all of the drug companies have been trying to do for the last dozen years or so with most of the drugs that have been uh, tested in clinical trials. But as I mentioned, uh, maybe they failed not because the idea is bad, but because they've been given to, to patients at too late a stage in the disease. Well, using the same kind of logic, uh, maybe if we uh, uh, reduce the amount of tau that's in the brain or somehow block its function, uh, that we can have the same effect and bypass beta amyloid oligomers. And this is now a new theme that a lot of drug companies are starting to look at seriously. And, and a lot of academic labs as well, including my own, we're working in, in collaboration with a company in Oregon uh, to try to come up with ways to reduce the levels of tau in brain. So the way I like to think about this is that um, amyloid is the trigger. It gets the disease started and tau is the bullet, it's the executioner, it's what actually does the damage. Now, because we have um, uncovered this, this very important connection between A-beta oligomers and tau and neuron death and synaptic dysfunction, it just makes sense that if we can figure out a lot more of the details, how this machine works, then uh, we may be much better poised in, to uh, develop better early diagnostic and therapeutic tools. So to that end, um, this is sort of our, our, our latest connect the dots figure uh, for how all of this happens. So uh, each one of these things, that RAC1, NCAM, G-alpha, S, it doesn't really matter what they are. They're all proteins that are essential and that are involved sequentially as shown here in the pathway from A-beta oligomer exposure to neuron death through tau. And so every one of these molecules is potentially a new early biomarker for Alzheimer's disease and a therapeutic target. And that sort of describes in a nutshell what we do in my lab. And just one last slide. 
these are most of the members of my lab, and, and, and uh, I do a lot of talking, but it's these guys who do all the work at the bench. So thank you very much for your time, and uh, I'm going to turn the podium over now to Dr. Salthouse, uh, uh, and then we'll have time for questions and answers afterwards. Okay, thank you. Um, and you're going to see a common theme in the talk you just heard and in my talk in that there really should be an emphasis on early detection, early diagnosis. Uh, and that's one of the uh, major goals of the research that we conduct in the Virginia Cognitive Aging Lab, which is the lab that I direct. Um, you just heard some of the statistics about Alzheimer's disease. One thing that uh, people quite often uh, fear the most about Alzheimer's disease is that it kills you twice. It kills you in the sense that it takes away your sense of identity. And in that sense, uh, you've lost uh, your meaning of life because you have no longer any of the memories of your life. And then it also uh, leads to bodily death. Sometimes people say that because it's such a cruel disease, it has actually spawned a secondary disease, a disease of Alzheimer's. Uh, many of you are probably here today because you fear that you may be on this trajectory towards Alzheimer's dementia. So we would say that you are people suffering from Alzheimer's, which is not the disease, uh, but it's a fear that you may be ending up or coming up with that disease. Let me tell you some of the criteria. As George mentioned, it's really a behavioral diagnosis. And the criteria for dementia can be talked about either informally or with more formal definitions. Informally, I like to refer to the acronym JAMCO, J-A-M-C-O. And these are the five primary manifestations of dementia, including Alzheimer's dementia. Judgment is usually impaired. Sometimes this is evident in social situations or in abstract decision making. The person can no longer carry out the same kind of social interactions or business decisions are compromised. Affect refers to both ends of the continuum. Sometimes people are very apathetic and withdrawn. Other times they kind of have these emotional outbursts and they are very uh, labile. They move back and forth in terms of uh, withdrawn and then uh, explosive emotions. Memory is the one that I'm going to be talking about the most. Um, uh, there's quite often the primary symptom of Alzheimer's disease is a memory uh, uh, difficulty, forgetfulness of general things, but also uh, more serious things like people uh, who you've known for much of your life. Sometimes you forget the names of them. Uh, sometimes people ask me, well, how do you know whether the memory problem is serious? If you're worried about where your keys are, that's not the kind of problem to worry about. If you're holding the keys in your hand and you don't know what they are, consult somebody right away because that's a problem, uh, and I'll be talking about that kind of distinction in memory in just a minute. Comprehension uh, has to do with difficulty following a line of thought, uh, sometimes confusion, uh, sometimes it's related to the orientation problems. People sometimes get confused about where they are, uh, what season it is, what time of day, and so forth. Uh, this is associated with people uh, in uh, early stages of dementia quite often wander off when they get disoriented. Quite often happens more 
during the evenings and the sundowning phase. Sometimes they call that the sundowning symptoms. Uh, so these are the informal criteria, JAMCO. The more formal criteria, the ones uh, that are actually used for diagnosis, are from, uh, there's several different criteria, but this is from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. Memory difficulty is the prime consideration. So that's the thing that you need to have in order to um, be diagnosed with dementia. Uh, and then you need some other type of deficit. Um, the deficits have to be severe enough that they compromise your everyday functioning. So it can't just be that you have this problem, uh, one or more of these problems, but you're still functioning normally. There has to be some impairment in your everyday life. It has to represent a decline from a prior state. So we're not talking about people who were always uh, having cognitive difficulties, but uh, people who have experienced some type of decline from a prior state. And, and most important, you have to exclude other possible causes of the current condition. Uh, and so this bottom one refers to no other neurological diseases. Um, there can be um, various diet considerations. Uh, even depression can cause some of the symptoms. So you have to rule out other things. So how do we determine whether there's a memory problem? Uh, well, the main criteria for assessing memory is not just asking somebody whether they have a memory problem, but you want to have a test that is standardized. Uh, we need to be able to compare different people so we can say that, yes, you do have a problem relative to other people. Uh, we have to have a test of memory that minimizes the influences of past experience. We would like to be able to test your memory now that corresponds to what you can do right now, not <clears throat> something that reflects what you've learned in the past. And I'll talk about that distinction between memory at the current time versus memory of what you've acquired in the past. Uh, and it also has to be sensitive. Let me show you what I mean by having to be sensitive. This is going to be critical for early diagnosis. Um, there are some very crude uh, uh, tests that are used for superficial screening of mental status or dementia. This is one particular one, the mental status questionnaire. And there are 10 questions that mainly assess orientation and comprehension. So you can see, uh, where are we now? What is this place? Uh, where are we located? What is today's date? What is the month? So orientation questions, comprehension questions, very little bit of memory in there. Um, and the scores on this particular test range from um, Zero uh, um, uh, items correct all the way on up to 10 items correct. But it's not a very sensitive test. Um, here's the kind of graph uh, or figure that uh, we're very interested in in the field of Alzheimer's disease. We want to be able to characterize normal aging and distinguish it from uh, these preclinical people who are going down towards the trajectory of dementia. We want to do that as early as possible. But the type of test that I just showed you uh, is not very sensitive because a lot of people are going to be in the 8, 9, and 10 range for a long, long time. By the time they have zero, uh, one, or two items correct, uh, they're probably way down in that level where <coughs> the disease has progressed so far that there may not be too much we can do. 
So a lot of the focus, both in the behavioral realm and also in the biological realm, is trying to characterize what's happening earlier than dementia and to distinguish it from normal aging. And there have been a variety of terms. They're not really diagnoses. They're not formal classifications. But they're terms to characterize those people who may be on a trajectory or at least are at risk for being eventually being diagnosed with dementia. Things like age-associated memory impairment, cognitive impairment without dementia, no dementia, benign senescent forgetfulness. A lot of times in academia, you make your name by coming up with a new terminology, and that's why there's so many of these. There's a lot of them around there. The one that is most commonly used, you saw this in Professor Bloom's talk as well as mine, this MCI refers to mild cognitive impairment. And that's probably the most commonly referred to preclinical stage of dementia right now. People who are diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment are something like two to three times more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease within the next three or four years. Uh, so that seems to be people who are at risk. And some of the criteria for uh, being in uh, the mild cognitive impairment, I love the acronym. So the acronym I'm referring to here is SOUND, S-O-U-N-D. The D refers to dementia criteria not met. So uh, the first thing they have to consider is that people who have MCI are not demented. They don't have those criteria. Uh, but they do have subjective complaints. They're experiencing some kind of problem or an informant reports that they are having some problems. Uh, there is an objective memory deficit. So if they come in and do the kinds of tests that we do in my laboratory, uh, you can see that their performance is somewhat below what we would expect for their age and education level. Uh, but they can do fairly uh, normal kinds of activities. Their overall cognition isn't affected, and they can get along in everyday life. Their activities of daily living are normal. They can dress, feed, care for themselves. They, <coughs> their everyday functioning is okay. It's just that they seem to have subjective complaints and objective deficits in memory. So my laboratory is trying to find the distinction as early as possible between people who might be in mild cognitive impairment or who are on those different trajectories. We're not interested in diagnosing dementia per se. What we would like to do is characterize as early as possible those people who are eventually going to be on a dementia trajectory from those who are healthy and normal. Just another fact, it turns out right now that if you reach the age of 85, there's a chance of about 30 to 40% that you'll be diagnosed with dementia. So we want to find people as early as possible to prevent that kind of thing happening. Uh, and in my laboratory, we administer a variety of tests. Some of them are memory tests, uh, and I'll give you an example of a couple of those uh, in a few minutes. Uh, we talk about them as episodic memory tests. Uh, we also have tests of vocabulary. Uh, <clears throat> this is a way to assess the information you've accumulated throughout your life. Uh, reasoning tests, spatial ability tests, and perceptual speed. 
We started this project in 2001, and it's been funded from the National Institute on Aging uh, ever since then. We've had about uh, 40, let's see, what is the latest number? 4,800 people who've been in at least once in our laboratory. About uh, 2,200 have come back at least one more time, uh, something like 1,000, three more times. It's now one of the largest projects in the world where we ask people to come back repetitively to have this kind of comprehensive cognitive assessment. Now, you might worry, as we do, <coughs> that the people in Charlottesville are not representative of the general population. And that's true. When we look at measures of <coughs> cognitive functioning, uh, people who live in Charlottesville, I think it's something to do with the weather, tend to be higher. No, it's actually <coughs> the people who are in our projects are higher fun functioning than the general population. But in large part, that's because the people who volunteer to participate in these studies are more select. But we do have a very wide range. Uh, the reason why I'm showing this in here is that even though the average is somewhere like the 75th percentile uh, of the general population for the people in our study, it's about the same at all different ages. Um, so how do we assess memory? Let me give you an example of a few of the things. Uh, I mentioned that knowing what keys are is not something to really be concerned about. That's called semantic memory memory of uh, the information that you've acquired over a long period of time. Another type of memory is episodic memory, and that's memory for facts and events that have occurred recently, and you know the time and the location. You know the where and the when of that information. That's why we call them episodic memories. They're memories of episodes that are uh, specific in terms of time and space. Here's an example of a vocabulary item. What does recluse mean? Or in what continent is the Amazon River? My guess is that many of you know the answers to those questions, but you can't remember when or where you were when you acquired the information. Uh, it's been acquired so many different times that it's become part of your generic semantic system. <clears throat> Here's some more examples of semantic memory, the kind of knowledge that is not really affected uh, by uh, dementia and uh, the kind of cognitive declines that I'm talking about. So <clears throat> does anybody know the original name of the boxer later known as Muhammad Ali? Well, here's what it looks like in terms of the age trends on those kinds of measures. The lower scores represent poorer performance. These are expressed in something called Z-scores. Uh, I don't want to get into details there, but towards the bottom represents poorer performance, towards the top is higher performance. And you can see uh, that these college student age people don't really know very much in terms of these <laughs> kinds of tests. Uh, but then they get better and better uh, with increased age, and uh, the maximum for these kinds of tests tends to be in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So that's the good news, this type of semantic memory, knowledge of things that you've acquired in the past, tends to be remarkably well-preserved throughout age. In fact, if anything, it's getting better. Uh, there's another type of memory, though, that shows this kind of trajectory, where it's just the opposite. And this is memory for uh, things that are happening recently, and you have to recall the details of those particular events. Uh, let me give you an example of this. And those of you who weren't hesitant to yell out when you knew the answers before, 
hold your responses a little bit. These, this is going to be a lot harder for most of us because this is episodic memory. What I'm going to do is show you a list of 12 words. There's no inherent relation among the words. You just have to look at them. And when you finally see the word recall, try to think of as many of the words that I just showed you that you can remember. You got it? Okay, here we go. So think there were 12 words there. Look at this list. How many of them did you remember? Now, this is not a real uh, way that we would do this testing um, because it would be one-on-one. I'd make sure you understood. I would make sure that you could see everything, make sure the person sitting next to you wasn't hitting you in the chest. I mean, I would make sure that it was done in the appropriate way. But when we do it in the laboratory, here's what the results look like for uh, a 12-word list like this, uh, that the people in the 20s and 30s can get about six or seven of those words. Uh, The criteria sometimes used where you might be uh, considered at risk for having memory problems is one and a half standard deviations below the mean of, say, 70-year-olds. And that would be about uh, two, a little over two items correct on this particular test. Now, don't go away feeling bad if you couldn't remember two of those. This is not the right kind of testing. But this is the kind of thing that we would do in my laboratory. And we do this with, this would just be one of about 20 different types of tests. When we do it in the laboratory, this is the kind of result that we've been finding. Yes, knowledge shows this increase. But many of these other cognitive abilities, reasoning, spatial ability, memory, and speed, show these decreases so that the lowest scores are in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. So what this is suggesting to us, that when we're trying to make that distinction between the two trajectories, or there may be even more, that this trajectory that we've been calling normal aging, or at least many people think is normal aging, really should be moved down because the people who are in our laboratory, for the most part, are very healthy, normal people. We're confident that very few of them are going to be in this trajectory, at least We hope that very few of them are going to be in that trajectory. So what it might mean is that we have to be very careful about describing what normal aging is. Um, Many of the uh, original formulations where they're talking about normal aging as not being associated with much of a difference relied on things like that mental status questionnaire that I showed you that is just not very sensitive. Uh, So what we would like to do, and this ties into the earlier talk, talk is find out, well, what can we do as early as possible? Uh, if somebody's going to be on that trajectory versus this one, we'd like to be able to know as early as possible. And what can we do? How can we push them up? Uh, well, here's my best guess <clears throat> in terms of the uh, things. First, be very careful about hearing these media reports where something is associated with uh, the likelihood of Alzheimer's disease or um, is associated with early aging. The reason for that is those are just correlations. My favorite example of a correlation is there was a study recently that married people were, had slower rates of age-related cognitive decline than unmarried people. I don't think anybody's going to prescribe marriage 
to avoid dementia. Uh, uh, that's, not, that's a correlation. There's a relationship there, but you have to think of it in terms of cause-effect relations. What are the causal kinds of things? Uh, there's a lot of interest in this. Here's my best guess. Physical activity, that's probably the best uh, thing that we can do right now, at least from a lifestyle perspective, is that more physical activity increases blood flow to the brain, which has got to be a good thing. We don't know a lot of the details about how it works, but my best guess is that that's a good one. Cognitive stimulation, possibly beneficial. There's a lot of controversy about that right now. We don't know, really know how to measure it. Sometimes what's stimulating for some persons might not be for others. Brain training, these commercial packages, my feeling is they're just not worth it. If you like to do crossword puzzles, Sudoku, or something like that, you probably get as much benefit as paying money for the brain training games. Uh, diet, supplements, and so forth, the evidence is really mixed there. Uh, I wouldn't recommend any of them. What I would recommend is find something you like to do that makes you happy and healthy and do that. Thank you. We have a few questions we could take. Professor Bloom, so when you said that we know that the amyloid B entangles are causing these problems, but they're happening in the 40s, but we can't actually recognize it until we do it after the fact, like after the fact meaning autopsy. So how, how do we know? How do we know this? We know this is happening at 40, but when, are we just going to indiscriminately well, it, give drugs to people and see if it helps them 50 years down the line, or is there something we can do before that to see if they have this? Well, we, we know uh, things like amyloid oligomers uh, starting to become detectable in brain decades before symptoms uh, because uh, people who have died while still cognitively normal have donated their brains uh, to science and that affords us with the opportunity to uh, uh, try to try to detect things like amyloid oligomers or tau oligomers in brains of, of people of, the, of those age. And what we find is that there are, when I say we, it's not work that we've done, my lab has done, but others. Yeah. Uh, you can, in some, pay, in, in some individuals in those age ranges, find these things. So uh, uh, sort of piecing together uh, uh, a, a, a timeline based on, on a lot of individual observations made over many years. Now, what was the second part of your question? Well, because uh, the only way that we can get that kind of information right now is at autopsy, which is kind of counterproductive uh, for trying to save the patient's life. Dr. Bloom, what is the normal function of tau, and do your tau knockout mice show any symptoms? And if so, that, so what are they? That's an excellent question. What is the, what is the normal function of tau? Well. Uh, for those of you who know a little bit of biology, it's found mainly on microtubules, which are these sort of cellular highways, fibers that are found inside cells that are normal. Every cell needs them. Um, and it helps to contribute to microtubule stability. But uh, there are a lot of other functions that we're just now beginning to understand. So for example, one of, one of the recent, I think, big breakthroughs was learning that uh, tau is very important for 
controlling uh, synaptic uh, activity uh, through what's known as the NMDA receptor. This is a receptor that uses uh, uh, a, a number of neurotransmitters, including glutamate, uh, for uh, sending signals from one brain cell to another. Now, as far as the town knockout mice are concerned, they have normal fecundity, which means normal levels of reproduction, normal lifespans. They spend a lot of time chasing their, ca their tails. And their ta we don't know why that is. Um, uh, they do have some subtle synaptic defects. Uh, I think it would be very risky to try to uh, get rid of tau altogether in human brain as a therapeutic tool. However, lowering the levels of tau in brain by 10 or 20 percent, uh, I, I think theoretically could have a tremendous therapeutic potential for people who are at risk of Alzheimer's. Now, you've suggested this is a prion disease. Do you have structural evidence that there's a prion change? Uh, yes, there is uh, structural evidence for both tau and amyloid. They both form beta sheet structures that can self-replicate uh, in solution. Thank you both for uh, your presentations. I do have a question. It's in 27 parts, but no, I'm just kidding. Um, I work closely with an association that deals with veterans who have suffered impact from combat and what have you. And one of the things that I, I do have a question on is, in your presentation, you made a correlation between head injuries and Alzheimer's. And the other issue that you addressed was you're trying to find uh, uh, areas of study where someone at an earlier age. Has there been any efforts towards looking at some of these athletes, professional athletes, or uh, combat veterans who have suffered these type of injuries and being able to use them in correlation to your studies? Well, actually, uh, uh, not my, I've not been personally involved in this, but others have, including, I think, very notably, uh, Dr. Stephen Dukoski, who uh, until a couple of months ago was dean of the medical school here at UVA and is, is still a professor of, of medicine here at the university. And uh, he's done, he and a few of his colleagues have done some groundbreaking work looking at professional athletes, namely professional football players, and finding uh, a lot of, the, using PET imaging techniques, these are for athletes who are showing signs of cognitive and memory impairment, uh, a lot of the kind of damage that you see in Alzheimer's disease. And you're probably starting to read a lot about it, this in the paper, hear about it on TV and radio, in the popular press. Uh, and the same holds true for traumatic brain injury. Uh, uh, there's a lot of variability from patient to patient about how it, uh, uh, how it progresses. So one thing about Alzheimer's disease is in every patient, it starts in the same place in the brain and it spreads anatomically by the same pattern. And that's because for reasons we don't understand, there's one part of the brain that's much more sensitive to the insults that initiate Alzheimer's. And once that gets started, what happens next is sort of uh, uh, a cast in stone. In the case of football injuries or traumatic brain injury for, for uh, uh, combat veterans, for example, uh, it really depends upon where the initial injury is, uh, how the disease will spread from the, the, the site of initial impact. Uh, and so some people uh, may have a lot of motor problems, difficulty with, with, with muscle control. Others may have uh, all sorts of a variety of different cognitive impairments. Often it looks very much like Alzheimer's disease, but not always. 
going to say I forgot my question. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot the answer. <laughs> How do you alter mice to give them AD? Well, mice don't normally live long enough to accumulate enough of the damaged, uh, uh, misfolded amyloid and tau that happens in old, older humans. There are some long-lived lived mammals that do apparently uh, experience similar kinds of disease processes. But, uh, but what we do in mice is to uh, transfer uh, human genes, particularly mutated human genes, uh, that for the mother protein of AMP, a beta or mutated tau that can cause Alzheimer's like diseases and then have those do it in a way that causes those proteins not only to be now present in the mouse brain on top of the normal mouse variants but to be expressed at very high levels and there are dozens of different mouse models and uh, I think as a collection they've been enormously valuable uh, for helping us understand the, uh, the, the pathogenic process. The mouse is still alive. The mouse is still alive, yeah. They don't get it naturally. They have to be genetically engineered to, have to, to get the disease. My mother passed in 2007, and prior to her death, I attempted to offer her brain for research, and I spoke with someone, and, of course, there'd be papers to sign they were suggesting a fee at that time. Have you made it easier for people to donate their brains to research? So, Tim? No, I like the brains inside the skull and being able to do my memory tests. So this would be George's. Uh, so when you say uh, pay, you, you were asked to pay or you were, somebody offered to pay you? I was just told there, that there would be a fee to do that. Why? I want to give you the opportunity. Where did you, what organization? Well, mate, you don't have to provide that information. I don't, that sounds, I don't remember. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I do not think that is standard practice. I, I, I think it's, it's typically a cash-neutral uh, deal, and uh, 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 I'm very disturbed to hear that somebody asked you to pay in order to have your uh, a brain donated for science. That's, that's just flat out wrong, even if it happened. Do you want to just say we'll be available afterwards? Uh, our speakers will stick around uh, for additional questions afterwards. But thank you for being here today. Thank you. Both of them are fantastic. They're fantastic. Thank you.